Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, I chat about the weather with two meteorologists from northern and southern Nevada about what's made the weather this summer unique, from monsoons to heat and wind. After that, Joey and I hop on a call with our editor, Jackie Valley, to go over three ballot questions that you're going to be seeing on the November ballot. At the end of the show, reporter Gustavo Segrero, with our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio, talks about how Native communities in the state have been healing from a history of discrimination, oppression, brutality, and erasure. We have had an unusual summer this year, at least up here in northern Nevada, and according to my colleagues down in southern Nevada, we've also had an interesting summer down there as well, cooler than usual. I'm recording this September 12th, and if you live up in Reno, you will know that we are inundated with smoke. This is the first real smoky day we've had this year. We wanted to talk about the interesting summer that we've had. So I interviewed two meteorologists from both Reno and Las Vegas to tell us a little bit more about why we're having such a unique and interesting summer. So we're going to start by hearing a little bit from Chris Smallcomb, the lead meteorologist at the National Weather Service here in Reno. A lot of us here at the forecast office were saying, wow, you know, it took until September 7th for us to get like dense, thick smoke into Reno, Carson City, Lake Tahoe this year, whereas, you know, the last couple of years, it was even in July, we were getting that kind of thick smoke. So that fire that's going by Auburn is just, it's not good. I, I just looked at a webcam image now and it looks like a bomb went off. Outside of the fire, though, we've had a pretty wet summer, both here in Reno and in Vegas. The Reno airport actually had its wettest August on record, dating back to 1893. And here's John Adair, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Las Vegas. So this has been a very active summer as far as thunderstorms and just the general effects of the monsoon have persisted. July, August, and now September, we've had a few periods where we haven't had that many thunderstorms. We had the heat wave, which was pretty significant all across the West. So between a few heat waves and then multiple rounds of thunderstorms, it has been a very interesting summer. It's actually been such an interesting summer that Reno and Vegas may set some records for themselves. It looks like we're going to set a record this year for the number of thunderstorm days. So the annual record of thunderstorm days set both in 1938 and 2015 for Vegas is 26 days. And in the monsoon season so far, we have had 24 days, which is a record for a monsoon season. And it looks like we have a few more days to possibly exceed the annual record. We'll see. We're now at 2,200 degree days for the, for the year. Now, what that means is we actually tied the record number of 100 degree days, and that was set last year. Funny enough, just because we tied for the most 100 degree days in a year this year, it's actually only the fifth hottest year on record. So still top 10, but it was much cooler than last year, which was the hottest year on record Reno had ever seen. 
Yeah, last year was the, the hottest. And a lot of that, you know, the high temperatures are certainly what people pay attention to. You know, like, oh, how many hundred degree days did we get and things like that. I'm telling you, it's the overnight lows that are, that that's what's getting us. We are not cooling off as nearly as much as we used to. Some of that is due to urbanization, to be sure. But there's a component of it that's a, a large scale pattern, global climate trends that are driving those overnight lows upwards. And Vegas actually had a relatively cool year this year because of the monsoons. Because we had so much moisture around and some stormy days, the cloud cover associated with it, the precipitation kept us a little cooler. And then when we have dried out, a big area of high pressure has developed over. We had a late summer heat event. The weather pattern just developed in such a way that allowed the moisture to stay over southern Nevada for a longer period of time than normal. Usually we're on the fringe of the monsoonal moisture where it brings moisture up out of northwest Mexico. And a lot of times it'll be over Phoenix and Tucson's area and it'll kind of ebb and flow and come out over southern Nevada and then go back over Arizona. It just stayed over Southern Nevada for a longer period this summer. So is this kind of an anomaly or can this be expected to be happening more in the future? It is a bit of an anomaly. And I don't know if, if you can say it will be happening more because just even in the last couple of years, we had very dry monsoon seasons. And with all this rain, I think the big question that a lot of people are asking, I know one that I've been thinking about frequently, is the drought, right? We hear so much about the drought. Lake Mead is really scary right now with how low it is, but we've been getting all this rain. So is that going to help us? Is that going to get us out of this drought? There's been some improvement, but really to get rid of the drought, we're going to need probably several good winters with widespread precipitation, snow in the mountains, especially up in the, the Colorado River Basin and where all of that snow accumulates and then runs off in the spring and fills the rivers and recharges the basins. That's what we'll really need to uh, get rid of the drought. Here in northern Nevada, it's all about the winter. You know, the monsoon stuff is nice, but it doesn't really add a lot to our water supply and to the health of the ecosystem and things like that. Okay, so it looks like we're probably still going to be in a drought, at least for the foreseeable future. But, I, you know, this year was weird, and I feel like I don't have an explanation for why yet. Is there a reason? Is weather predictable? Can we figure out why this year has been weird, or has it just been an anomaly? So I'll totally give you an unsatisfying answer. Is it Basically, it's just <laughs> natural variability. Chris was right. That was an extremely unsatisfying answer. You know, there's always the climate component of the of the shifting climate. A warmer atmosphere yields, you know, more moisture and heavier, more intense rainfalls. I think we saw a component of that this summer with those intense rains that we have in a lot of areas. But overall, a lot of it is just natural variability on top of the changing climate, increasing frequency of heat waves. And while it was an unusually cool summer in Las Vegas, it doesn't mean that there wasn't plenty of hot days as well. So we issue excessive heat warnings when the risk is high or very high for heat-related illness in the, the general population. And there are a number of factors that go into determining that, not just the temperature, but also the time of year, the acclimation that people have with respect to the heat. And the fact that we had such a late season heat wave did factor in that we were much above normal for this time of year and near record temperatures led to a lengthy period of excessive heat over a, a week. Mm -hmm. And so that's fairly significant. Of course, that has impacts not only for your AC bill, but it also has effects for health. 
you know, people who are vulnerable to, to heat waves when they can't cool off at night, that, that can really be a struggle. All right, so what's next? What should we expect in this coming fall and winter? Are we still going to have a lot of precipitation or is it going to change? So this winter, we're going to be in what's called a uh, La Nina stage in the Pacific Ocean. So you either have El Nino or you have La Nina or you have something in between, which is like neutral. So we'll be in La Nina stage, which means that the tropical Pacific Ocean is cooler than normal over a very broad area. And so that can have implications for where the storm track, the jet stream, things like that. So typically in a La Nina winter, you get more frequent storms in the Pacific Northwest. So it tends to be wetter up there. You get less frequent storms in the Southwest, so like LA, Phoenix. So it's drier than normal there. Here in Northern Nevada, we're kind of in between. And so we've had we've had wet versions of La Nina and we've had also dry versions of, of La Nina. And so to also complicate matters this year is, this would be the third La Nina in a row, which we've only had two other instances since the early 20th century of that occurring of what we would call triple dip La Nina. So both of those previously, those two examples did trend drier than normal for Northern Nevada and the Sierra, but those are just two data points and any scientist worth their salt is not gonna base something off of two data points. So going into this winter, what I'm telling people is really anything is on the table at this point. We could end up with a third dry year in a row or we could end up with a, a normal year or it could be super wet. One little quirk in the data and this is why I tell people is don't, just because we're in a drought and everything seems to be on fire, don't let your guard down to flooding this winter. The quickest way to end a drought is with a flood. And that seems to be the way Northern Nevada operates is we, we get into these drought periods and then boom, we get a big flood. And all that rain in Vegas means that they've already experienced some flooding. The number of flash flood, have just been a high number of flash flood events. And what about winter for Las Vegas? There's still a pretty strong indication that La Nina conditions are going to persist through the winter, which typically spells drier and warmer than normal conditions for the Southwest, including Southern Nevada. Well, there you have it. Looks like it's probably going to be a dry winter in Las Vegas, and who knows what's going to happen up here in Reno. But what we do know is right now there's lots of smoke in the air up here. But anyway, hopefully this weather update was interesting to you. And I want to thank John Adair with the Las Vegas National Weather Service and Chris Smallcomb with the Reno National Weather Service for chatting with me today. This piece was produced and edited by myself, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. Alrighty, well, going from weather to ballot questions, uh, no real, <laughs> no real through line there for those two con connecting those two. Um, but I am here with my lovely co-host Jacob Solis. I am lovely. Thank you for noticing, Joey. <laughs> and also our wonderful editor Jackie Valley. Hi, Jackie. Hello, Joey. I'm Jacob. So these last couple of weeks, we've been having candidates on the podcast talking about different races in Reno and in, in, in Congressional District 3 in Vegas. And we're going to have more of those. But right now, we're also talking about another thing that's going to be on your ballots, which is ballot questions. Yeah. So we've got three ballot questions on the ballot this year on all kinds of things, frankly. And so we're going to break down exactly what they mean and exactly what you're going to be voting on. And I guess the place to start would be with ballot question one. So Jackie, what is ballot question one? So ballot question one is often referred to as the Equal Rights Amendment. It's separate from the federal Equal Rights Amendment or ERA that was attempted to be added to the United States Constitution back in the 70s. 
That effort stalled because three-fourths of states needed to ratify it, and that didn't happen by the deadline. The state did ratify the federal ERA amendment back in 2017. So use that as background. But what this does, question one, is it adds very distinct language to the Nevada Constitution. So what it says is it would be amended to guarantee equal rights, regardless of, quote, race, color, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender, identity or expression, age, disability, ancestry, or national origin. So it expands a little bit beyond what the federal ERA was at the time, but it stemmed from a Senate Joint Resolution 8 back in the legislative session of 2019. So that resolution was approved back then. It was approved again in 2021. And now the final stage is it goes for a vote. And if it is passed, then the Nevada Constitution is amended to include that language. Yeah, I guess just to clarify real quickly how we got here. So this is an amendment to the state constitution that originated from the legislature. And so it's had to pass the legislature twice, once in 2019, again last session in 2021. And now, finally, it has to pass through voters, at which point then the constitution in the state will be amended. Yes. So it has been a multi-step process, and this is the final leg of that journey. Wow, okay. Well, then moving right along, question two, which is about the minimum wage, right? Joey, what is happening with question two? Yeah, so this is passed by the legislature twice, and now it's going to the voters to once again get voted. Similar to the ERA, it will be added to the state constitution. This is kind of a redundant question, a lot of people are saying. Basically, it, it, it's codifying in the state constitution that there will be an increase in the minimum wage for workers in Nevada. This was already passed in law. And, and so this is kind of, like I said, it's a redundant thing, but it is increasing the minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2024. And so Jackie, I'm gonna let you kind of make a little bit more distinction about you know, why we're doing this as a ballot question as well as having the law. Yeah, so this one will probably be a head scratcher to some voters who encounter it on the ballot because we are already moving to $12 an hour as the state's minimum wage. But right now there's a caveat in state law that says, if an employer offers health benefits to workers, they can pay a dollar less than minimum wage. So minimum wage right now, as it's moving toward that $12 an hour mark, it ranges between $9.50 for those who do offer health insurance and then $10.50 for those who don't. So what this particular ballot question number two does is it would get rid of that distinction and that caveat with the health insurance and just make it a flat $12 an hour rate across the board, no matter whether insurance is offered. And and I'm wondering, too, is there any kind of legal utility to making sure this is in the Constitution instead of a law? Yeah, I mean, when you put something in the Constitution, it's a lot harder and a lot longer process to remove it from the Constitution. So in, in a way, too, it's kind of really guaranteeing this raise in minimum wage. When you pass a law, it's a little bit easier to repeal. It's a little bit quicker of a process to repeal than the long process of re-amending the Constitution to take out an amendment. <laughs> so so I, I think that this is another way to kind of guarantee that increase, especially if there is, say, a change in a controlling party that may not want to have that increase increase in the minimum wage. Well, that'll be a fun one for sure. But we have to end at ballot question three. And this one is fascinating and topical because it's ranked choice voting. All right, Jackie, so what is ranked choice voting and why is it on the ballot this year? Yeah, so question three, I think we have to define two terms before we get into it. The first is open primaries, and that's a concept in which everyone, regardless of voter registration, would be allowed to participate in a primary. So as it sounds right now, you know, you have to be a Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary and a Republican to vote in the Republican primary, which cuts out 
a large swath of voters. So that's what an open primary would be. Secondly, the term ranked choice voting sounds just like it is. Instead of marking one candidate, you would be able to mark several by preference order, in other words, ranking. And so those are the two concepts underlying question three. So what question three does then is it merges those two concepts and it would create an open primary system. And so that's the first part of it. And then the second part is it would implement ranked choice voting for the general election. So there's a woman philanthropist named Catherine Gale. She's the pioneer behind the concept of final five voting, which is really what the ranked choice voting end of it involves. And so those two concepts are what question three would do to change and really overhaul how votes are cast in Nevada moving forward. And again, this is put to the the voters for determination if it moves forward at all. Yeah. And one thing, too, is we recently have gotten rid of the caucus system here in Nevada. But if you've done early caucusing, this is going to look kind of similar to that, actually. Basically, we are no longer doing caucusing. We are now just going to you can just go early vote or vote. And so that it's not every seat. The big ones are like U.S. House seats, Senate seats, and then statewide offices in the legislature. Notably excluded from this would be the presidential race, although we're not going to be seeing that this November. We'll be seeing that in 2024. But basically, you pick your top five candidates and you would rank them. And if your first candidate is a viable candidate, if they get enough votes that they would technically be the winner, then your vote just goes to them. But say my first candidate was someone who is probably not going to win, but I really wanted my vote to go to them first. And, and they ended up not being a viable candidate. You know, only 10 people voted for them out of a thousand. Well, then instead of my vote kind of being, quote unquote, wasted on them, at least I got to say that I wanted them to be first, but not enough people voted for them. That would get skipped and it would go to my second choice and it would keep going down the line until we got to a viable candidate. And it, it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. We have a video on our website, which explains it in a lot more detail where I'm using poker chips and playing cards to kind of explain it a little bit better than this. But overall, you don't even need to fill in all five. If you are really strongly feeling that like this is the candidate I'm voting for, and I don't want anyone else, you can just put that candidate's name down and, and that's it. You voted, you're done. It's going to make voting, I think, a lot more interesting for people. And I think at least initial round, once we start doing ranked choice voting, if it passes, will cause a lot of confusion at first. And I think people are going to need to touch up on what they're going to be doing and what they're going to be voting in. But the confusion is not necessarily in the process of voting itself, but in the process of counting and how counting functions. Well, it will be interesting to watch because certainly we've seen in Alaska this year, a special election there where a Democrat won the state for the first time in a long time because of ranked choice voting. Other states like Maine and even states like California or Louisiana adopting things like jungle primaries, right? Things that are going to eliminate the sort of pressure of a two-party system on, on American politics. But... Certainly, there are people who are not happy about the ranked choice ballot question. Can you talk about how elected officials have reacted to this being on the ballot at all? Yeah, well, some of our top level Democrats have really come out hard swinging against this. They think that it could be confusing in the education process for voters, first of all, and Joey already alluded to that. But they also have fears that it could lead to some errors or it could further marginalize votes from historically disenfranchised communities. So those are their main worries. They've been pretty aggressive in coming out against this. But on the flip side, you have people who say, no, wait a minute, take a step back. This is something that could 
really expand access, especially for nonpartisan voters or people who feel like they're shut out of the primary process. And so, you know, sort of the balancing act right now, I think, as Jacob mentioned, the Alaska election was a really interesting litmus test for how this could change the nature of politics moving forward. But it's far, far, far from a done deal in Nevada. It's on the ballot this November. They would need to be on the ballot again in 2024. So it would have to be approved twice by voters before actually being implemented. All right. Well, if you want to know more about any of these ballot questions and more, you can find all of it on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where we've got stories and videos really diving deep into what these ballot questions are going to mean. And you can find it all on our elections page. This upcoming piece is from reporter Gustavo Sagrero, a reporter with our friends over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Part of it is an interview between him and I talking about his reporting, and part of it is a story that he worked on, and you can find the full story on KUNR's website, KUNR.org. And just a heads up that this piece can get pretty heavy, talking about the dark history that Native Americans have faced here in America. In the summer of 2021, remains of children in unmarked graves were found buried at Indian schools in Canada. This led to an effort to have a more open and honest conversation in both Canada and the U.S. about the harrowing and troubled history of Indian schools in North America. The U.S. Department of the Interior then investigated over 400 Indian schools that the U.S. operated between 1819 and 1969, and released an initial report of its findings in May. One of those schools is the Stewart Indian School in Carson City. KUNR reporter Gustavo Segrero has been talking to members of Native communities here in Nevada to learn more about how they've reclaimed their heritage and honor those who were subject to the cruelty that happened at these schools. Brennan Rogers is singing Judy Trejo's memorial song at the cemetery across the street from the Stewart Indian School. It opened in 1890 with the goal to erase indigenous culture and take the land from tribes that were forced onto reservations. He was there to join others earlier this month who ran an ultra marathon to honor indigenous people who were victims and survivors of this school. Coo Stevens started this run last year with his folks. His great-grandfather, Frank Togo Quinn, was taken to the school about 100 years ago. Coo says eight-year-old Quinn managed to run away from the school three times. If you have kids or if you have nephews or baby brothers or sisters, think about what they're doing right now. You know, they're, they're, they're not running 50 miles to, you know, save their own lives to get back to their families that they were stripped away from. Delmar is Ku's dad. He says the third and final time Quinn ran away, school staff had made attempts to make it harder for that to happen. That didn't stop his grandfather. They decided, well, we're going to chain him to this kid that he doesn't like, you know, because... They don't like each other, they're not gonna, you know, try to run away, but they did. All chained up together, not liking each other, but they still worked together enough to like, man, we gotta get out of here, you know, that's that free spirit. The Stevens family started this run after the discovery of mass graves at a similar school in Canada. You've done a lot of reporting on, on the Native communities here in, in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to start with just kind of what you feel like you've seen in the last year or so in Native communities here as they're kind of trying to trying to grapple with a lot of the horrific stuff that's been coming out about Indian schools. 
Well, I think the common thread here is that we're still here. That's the common theme from Ku, the young man who organized that run, to, you know, even Stacey Montooth from the Nevada Indian Commission. That sentiment is very common and widespread where it's like, hey, we're still here. We're still doing our thing. We're still thriving and living our lives and we're doing okay. And I think that's at the core of what a lot of people are saying when it comes to this conversation. Stewart, which was closed in the 80s. At that point, it had become a place many indigenous students wanted to go to. It was run by indigenous people who understood the lived experiences of the youth, but its roots began in something much more sinister. This is Stacy Montooth, executive director of the Nevada Indian Commission, which is housed on the campus. The policy to forcefully assimilate my relatives to establish Indian boarding schools was, in fact, genocide. In Montooth's office today, there's a sticky note that has a set of numbers placed on her computer. One of those is 233, which is the number of graves at the boarding school. 96 of those, she says, are unmarked and only have an age and a gender assigned to the child. She says in the beginning, the school had the goal to kill the Indian and replace them with someone that would participate in settler society. It's only one part of a centuries-long effort to erase indigenous people through genocide from the land. He organized a run that was in remembrance of his great-grandfather who actually went to Stewart Indian School, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that run? When did it happen and, and kind of what was he trying to commemorate there? So the run started last year with the goal to commemorate the experiences that his great-grandfather went through as lo- along with like everybody else, relatives who also went to that school. When you look at the report from the Department of Interior about the purpose of these schools. There's this line in there that says something like, you know, at the beginning, students will not want to go to the school. They will want to leave, kind of like a bird who wants to be free. But after a period of time, they'll find comfort in this cage they find themselves in. And that's not to undermine the lived experiences of people in the later generations who found comfort in these schools because they didn't feel welcome in other places for whatever reason. When Stewart was first founded, it was funded in part by Nevada bonds being sold to bankroll the program. U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto sits on the Senate Committee for Indian Affairs, which plays a role in the investigation. Most of, and if not all, of the federally funded boarding schools were put into a system of cultural assimilation uh, with the ultimate outcome of taking their lands. It began with kidnapping children from tribes in the surrounding area, like the Shoshone, Washos, and Paiutes. But over the years, up to 200 tribes around the West had their children taken here. The initial report issued by the Department of Interior expects more bodies will be found, an expectation echoed by Cortez Masto. There are some grave sites we don't even know about, and that's true for so many across the country. So there are grave sites that we don't know about in Stewart Indian School. I would suspect, but we don't know. Montooth says for indigenous people, all this information is nothing new, but now a federal document is acknowledging it. In the next few months, Cortez Masto says the rest of the investigation will reveal more of the impact of these schools. One of the things that captures my attention when it comes to reporting on issues of people, the original peoples of this continent, the original nations that lived in these spaces, in this in this sagebrush land, was that you can kind of see, like, the history of what happened. They know, right? They know. Everybody knows what happened. They all acknowledge it. I mean, these communities know what happened to them. And it's really us, the outsiders, the the people who don't really participate or aren't from those communities who are kind of coming to terms with the history of what happened. So for them, all of this is nothing new. The thing that interests me moving forward is seeing what they're looking at, the issues that 
these communities need more information from. There's not that many people covering indigenous issues here in Nevada. There's a couple other people around. Irby Jim, he's the chairman of the Hungololti community, which is the southern band of the Washoe tribe. Their ancestral lands include part of where Stewart Indian School is now. Many of his elders came to the school. For him, justice is ongoing. The justice is, is that we're still here. Justice is, is that we are moving forward in a good way with our heads held high and we still have that pride in our hearts and we're still keeping our language and our culture. While we're talking about this actually is that there's a book written about Stuart Indian School by Samantha Williams called Assimilation, Resilience and Survival, A History of the Stuart Indian School. And, and, and that's actually out now, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And another thing that came out is that recently, the Department of Interior has recently named 650 public spaces that used racial slur, a French word used to degrade indigenous women. And, you know, of those 650 public spaces that had that word in them, there were 35 that were located in Nevada and five in Washoe County. Now, there's a lot of kind of things happening, it seems, in, in, in kind of trying to rectify a lot of this rough history. Yeah, definitely. I think that Language has a powerful way of allowing us to perceive the world. And, you know, I think the way that derogatory terms are used for certain populations, the fact that that's changing now in 2022, that's kind of sad, first of all. The fact that we're using derogatory terms with a history of violence associated with them in 2022, the fact that we're barely changing that is kind of indicative of how late the rest of the country is to how we're acknowledging our relationship with the original communities here in these in North America. And, you know, that's something to think about, at least for me. For Ku, a step towards justice would be people learning what it really means to be patriotic for a country that he says has done so much wrong to indigenous people. If you really learn more about Native American history, you could see why historical trauma affects us so much. If you hear about some of the the brutal the brutal, brutal things that have happened to us, the different massacres, the way that we've been treated throughout the centuries. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast today. And be sure to you know keep an eye out for Gustavo's reporting on KUNR, you know, Public Radio, where you're doing a lot of coverage on this, as well as other topics. So, Gustavo, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Chris Smallcomb, John Adair, Jackie Valley, and Gustavo Scudero for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with the best Starbucks seasonal drink, or whatever else is on your mind, at podcast at theenvyindy.com. Our original theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.